And welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. I am super excited for today's guest, lead singer of one of the coolest bands from the 80s, Cutting Crew, Nick Van Eed. Cutting Crew had a ton of hits back in the 80s. One for the Mockingbird, I've Been in Love Before, and of course, I Just Died in Your Arms. The last being featured recently in the Lego Batman movie. So it's kind of reached a whole new generation. I know it's reached my son. Nick talks all things about the band, how it got started, the name, great stories from the 80s. And the band, mainly Nick now, is they're still performing. They recently released their latest album. It's called Add to Favorites. It's nothing like you've heard from a Cutting Crew album before, and that's quite okay. It's fabulous. You'll hear some songs during the show. You also hear some things about Nick that you may not know, and the band recently went on tour in Canada, really, really hoping that Nick brings Cutting Crew over here to the States. I'd imagine sometime in 2019, fingers crossed, could be awesome to see them. Here's my conversation with Nick. Nick Van Eed. Nick, how are you today? Very well, thank you. It's a beautiful spring afternoon here in England, um, so we don't get many of them, so I'm enjoying it. Thanks. Oh, good. Yeah, so I, I won't hold you up too long so you can go, go enjoy the weather. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I first discovered you guys as most Americans back in 87, but I was in summer camp and it was a lip sync competition and one of the groups performed, I Just Died in Your Arms. And that was the first time I heard the song, and I absolutely loved it. So I asked some of the kids in the other group, you know, who who performed it, and they you know, they told me uh, it was Cutting Crew. So I immediately wrote my mom that day to go pick up broadcasts from you know the store and mail it to me as soon as possible. And I bought, got the cassette, and I absolutely loved it. it's brilliant. And I, I had so many uh, debates with one of my friends about which band was better. I, I always chose your band at level 42, and he he loved Iron Maiden for some reason. So it was an interesting debate that we had. You know, both bands couldn't be any different, but it, it was it was kind of funny in the heated debates. 
Yeah, well, that, that, thank you. Um, I, mean, I think that my I've been in the music business a long time now, and I do think that when you do get success, uh, obviously it's about making a great product, if you want to say that, you know. But also, it's so many things about the stars lining up, you know, about how the, the way we sounded, the way we looked, um, it was a kind of odd. Nobody really knew who the hell we were. Were we Canadian? Were we English? Were we American? Who, who knows? We didn't have a very strong image. And so, in some ways, that all, all kind of worked for us. It was a bit of a mysterious thing. Um, and uh, as I said, you know, the, the, the album stood up. It was fresh. It was a bit different from what was going on at the time. And uh, I still get beautiful comments 30 years later. So I'm very thankful. Yeah, and I, I, I thought you guys were Canadian. You know, because I you know Kevin's Canadian. I thought you guys were kind of like a, a glass tiger type, where you know yeah. you you looked similar and you know you sounded great. And you know when I found you were English, I was like, oh, didn't change anything. But I was like, oh wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, the um the Canadian connection probably researched is that I was in a band before Cutting Crew, the sort of new wave, right. trashy kind the drivers, of, right? And uh, yeah, and we got signed. Uh, to a Canadian label, and uh, that's where we met Kevin. So it's a little odd to meet your future life music partner in Halifax, Nova Scotia. But that's, you know, I'm sure you've done a lot of interviews, and these these weird things happen. You know, I've never even heard of Halifax. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, when did you like first know that you wanted to be a musician? Well, are you? Are you a musician? Me, uh, no, I, I just for for my uh, birthday this past year, my wife bought me an acoustic guitar, so I'm 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 learning now, but yeah, I'm nowhere near anything ready to perform. <laughs> oh, right. I, I just ask because sometimes it's you know it's easy to explain when somebody already is a musician. Right. Um, I don't think it's special being a musician. You know, you can be an artist, you can be a, an accountant, you can be a, a clergyman, but um, the calling was quite early. I mean, I. I do remember being as young as 13 and, and, and knowing that I want what I wanted to do, but the acid test, just to, to honestly see if you're any freaking good, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's all good to dream and everything, but I, I had a fantastic school. The pol- politics of England were changing back in the early 70s where um, the old uh, conservative Tories were getting kicked out and a lot of young socialist governments were in and the, the whole kind of way that schools are put together from old dodgy uh, grammar schools, you know, a bit like Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> uh, they were they were disappearing and um, you were getting these young funky schools where young teachers were coming in. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I was supposed to be the, the guy that wrote the songs for the Alone School Productions and, and nobody was physically sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nobody threw uh, baked bean cans at me, so in its own little way, it gave me a wonderful confidence. And then, once you got your confidence, the world, you can make it your oyster then. And and I went on to enjoy a lovely career. How did you guys come up with the name Cutting Crew? Um, Pretty boring story, but (laughs) uh, it it was... uh, Kevin, if Kevin was here, I I would now kick him and he would tell a, a false story he would right. be teller, teller of made up stories I think his favourite one was uh, 
when when he came over from Canada, we were so broke we used to busk on the streets, and the sounds of the pennies hitting our bucket went kating kating. So we were the kating crew. <laughs> <laughs> But that's not the true story. The true story right. is um, we put we put the band together, Kevin and I, and we basically just wrote songs. We weren't, you know, even after all these years of playing in live music in bands all our life, for the first time we were just recording demos. We knew that we needed to get a record deal before, so the most important thing was to write and write and write. And at the same time, I remember reading a review about Queen, who'd um, literally disappeared off the face of the earth on the live circuit, but had you know recorded all these beautiful albums. And one of the guy, one of the guys in Sounds Magazine UK called them a cutting crew, meaning like cutting records. Right. And and that's what we were at that time. So I I suggested it. Kevin liked it. And then of course within months there was this whole kind of movement of urban black dance music which often used the word crew in it you know sort of grandmaster flash and the rock steady crew all these kind of things so there was this funny thing when we tried to find our records and we always ended up in the urban bit in the records okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well definitely you know bring you on to a whole new uh like fan base <laughs> certainly would yeah yeah <laughs> Like take take us back when you first like wrote "I Just Died in Your Arms" and what was like the inspiration for the song and like any good stories about when you recorded it? Hmm. Well, it's um it's an old tried story about what what it's about. And right, right. <laughs> I split up with a girlfriend and uh, we got back together for a, a night and um you know it was all very much the following morning, I mean, it really, 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 really was the following morning I wrote a song and um, the title came out and uh, I wrote it down and continued to, to record it. But So that bit is fairly well known. I mean, I can give you a bit more flesh on the bone about the way it was recorded. Um, I was completely broke. I was living with a friend in South London, um, sleeping on his couch and uh, he had this little, I didn't, he had this little, uh, I think it was a four-track, maybe eight track, I can't remember, demo studio, you know, demo portal studio. And um, I just piled everything on like I could. I, I wrote the bump, 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 bump on the worst ever sounding keyboard you've ever heard. You know? yeah. and, um, and I kind of wrote it in a, a day, every single card, apart from Kevin's majestic, you know, bunk, gun, 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 all the little guitar parts, which right. is totally Kevin. But the bones of the song were written in a day. And if you want a kind of a funny story to it all, is that, you know, it existed. It was done. It was written. I found Kevin. We became good friends. He flew over from Canada and we formed Cutting Crew. And I said to him, look, I've got a few songs knocking about. You want to hear them? And he said, yeah, let's have a listen. And I played him Died in Your Arms. And he said, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty good. Let me, let me hear the guitar parts. And of course, I put on about... I'm not joking, I think 10 guitar parts all over top of each other. Because <laughs> I'm not a very good guitarist, but to get yeah. that kind of effect that I wanted. And he, I remember him taking a long drawer in his cigarette and said, thanks for fucking laugh. He had to unravel it and work out that, you know, that seminal guitar part. But um, as you know, he did a great job. So, yeah, and from times of no money, um, lots of dreams. Uh, but, uh, but I knew it was a good song. I mean, I, um, I'd been writing five years before with a publishing company. And, one, you know, something about that song always made you kind of excited before it was recorded. 
Right. And just, I mean, it's like, it's a, such a perfect song. I'm not saying it's a perfect 80s song. It's just a perfect song. It, I mean, it holds up today more than ever. And just the beginning of its song, once you hear it, you, you know, the, the iconic you know, synth, you know, it's, it's coming on and it's, you can make, you know, make yourself happy for like three to four minutes. Thank you. And, and also, it takes a while for me to be able to stand back and see, I'm not talking anything about how good it is or how, you know, because that's a matter of opinion. But for me, you've got to remember that I, I think almost that moment I've been writing songs like, one, two, three, four, like really kind of hard in your face, three-piece, two-and-a-half-minute thrash, uh, witty, funny little, um, like, squeeze meets the jam kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. Um, what on earth happened that night for me to wake up in the morning and write <laughs> and write this 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 other kind of style? So uh, I had to pinch myself a little bit when I done that. And also the voice. Um, I'm not being any any bull here, no. But uh, you know the the, the, the voice. I, I didn't put it on. It was almost as if I found another voice. But who knows what happened that that strange week? But um, I'm still standing, as they say. Right. <laughs> now. Your follow-up to I Just Died in Your Arms was a, also a smash hit, great song, I've Been In Love Before. What's a little backstory about that song and also the recording of it?
recording the demo, I just bought a new keyboard, which was like one of the cheapest keyboards you could buy, a Poly, a Korg Poly 800. And, um, you know, I, I always say this to young writers, that if you want to write four good songs, you only get a small window of about a week, but buy a new piece of kit because you get all these new sounds and you get excited and, you, you, you know, even if you don't even know what you're doing with that piece of kit, write and put them, put the, you know, record it. Um, and that's what I did with, um, with Been In Love Before. I had this beautiful pad sound, wrote the song, wrote, the, you know, the da-da-dum, da-da-dum. Even I wrote all the guitar parts on that song um, and it was done in about, I think, a day. Uh, everything, lyrics a lot. So that's not rare. A lot of artists can claim to that. But um, we then recorded it um, for the album. We went. We were sent out to New York to work with uh, Steve, uh, Steve Thompson and Michael Barbieri, who had a lot of um, big production hits, and they nailed it. They, they, they took us to this beautiful old converted church in uh, Manhattan. I can't remember what it was called. Something Sounds, Media Sounds, I think it was. Very boring name, but a beautiful right. venue. We got in um, some pretty good percussion players, um, and uh, the band recorded it. And I think Michael really nailed the sound. It's very warm, very, very uh, cuddly kind of sound, you know, which is uh, what we wanted. And, yeah, very always delighted with the end result of that song. Yeah, you should be. It's it's a fantastic song. Uh, like like I mentioned earlier in the interview, like you know, Broadcast is such an iconic album, and I wish like it would still be brought to light. 30 years ago it's it's still like sounds fresh yeah we um we were offered a sort of repackage of it last year and uh because it was the 30 year anniversary right. and i i said to virgin no thank you but i i would like to have done something new to it as well so to maybe re remix a couple of songs so we didn't have enough time last year so i think there are plans in the next couple of years to reissue it but with a few tweaks yeah, you can do it for the 35th anniversary or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know. <laughs> if I'm still alive. Oh, yeah, stop it, yeah. One of my favorite songs on the album is Fear of Falling, also. It kind of leads right into I Just Died in Your Arms. What, what's Any uh, story about that song?
Yeah, that, that's very Kevin. Um, okay. I was the principal writer in the band, um, on the first album especially, because you know, I've written two or three songs already. Um, and on Scattering, Kevin got a few more songs in, and then by, by the time we'd written Compassmentus, he was you know half and half. He was emerging beautifully. But that was his song, Half Year of Falling. Um, that that those little time you know big bar drops, uh, sorry beat drops in the bars and um, odd lyrics. All about walking around New York, um, New York City. You can hear like the underground and metro announcements and things. Very very um, you know that it's almost got like a kind of uptown jazzy brass chords coming in every now and again. Um, and I remember him sitting working a lot with Peter Vitesi, our keyboard player, to get that feel. So I have to say hands up on that. I very happily stayed out of the room until somebody called me in and said, right, sing this. Right. <laughs> exactly. So when the broadcast blew up and you were you know, touring the world and stuff like that, how exciting was the tours for you? They were great. I mean, we, we were all seasoned um, musicians. You know, we hadn't done nothing. We were, uh, I toured out in Canada where I right. met Kevin, you know, so we'd, we'd done a bit of traveling, but um, now this was serious. You know, we, were, we, were, we went on tour with the Bangles and Huey Lewis and Starship, um, sometimes, you know, co-headlining, sometimes headlining, because we had, even though those bands were, bigger bands than us with a more of a track record we had the hot records in the charts so they, they you know paired us up so we were playing ooh, 15,000 20,000 uh, seaters you know great big shows with with Hugh Lewis and the news and we were just these um we weren't youngsters but we were very very uh what do you call it you know very new to the to that big scene, and I loved every minute of it. I think we did okay. I think our our sound is quite big and fluffy, you know. So it it suited the big arenas. It wasn't like an intimate little sound that um, that would have got lost. So I think we did well. And very fond memories of Grace Slick and the Bangles and and Huey and uh, yeah, they're just just very not hazy at all. I do remember that part of Cutting Crew very well because it was before it got really 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 busy they just sent us off on the road for nine months <laughs> right yeah and then i'm sure you did like all the, the tv shows and like what was like one of your favorite ones to do well it, it was scary johnny carson right. um was, was huge and um there was some kind of strike um the, the the tech guys were striking the audio tech guys and so when we were on and we were told that it, it, it could be very risky because, you know, they're going to have a bunch of youngsters up there doing the sound. So we took our own engineer that we'd used making the album in, in A&M Studios in, on La Brea in Hollywood. How posh does that sound? <laughs> um, so we got him to come up and do the sound for us. And um, um, there was still some crazy stuff going on. So I remember um, the beginning of Died in Your Arms started with the, you know, the game it was so loud and I remember thinking if somebody doesn't turn this down in the monitors before I start singing I'll never be able to hear a song so that was in front of 64 million people that, wow. was, a, that was a scary moment wow yeah and, and I do remember Kevin uh, the Canadian you know uh, yeah. knew what Johnny Carson meant he watched it ever since he was a kid probably to us Brits it was just a, another big TV show but he he was physically sick in, in the toilets before he went on you know he was that nervous <laughs> 
Yeah, because yeah, because like you said, Carson was was huge back then. There wasn't like as many of those talk shows as there are now. So he was he he was he was it at that time. Um, did you ever host Saturday Night, or play on Saturday Night Live as a musical guest? No, we didn't. We wanted to. We got in. It doesn't matter, but I, I'm sure we were asked once, and we were out in Japan. And oh, okay. Make it, but yeah, they were going to do a skit with us. I remember that. And since then, there's been so many skits on Saturday Night Live of, of featuring Cutting Crew stuff. So I'm quite proud of that. I don't know if you're aware of the one with um, Will Ferrell um, singing. Uh, he's in the wedding band. And, and oh, yeah. Sing yeah, that one. And just wonderful. I mean, that's... You, Things you cling on to in your career, you know, I, this happens a lot. I bet if you spoke to Mick Jagger, I bet if you spoke to Brian Ferry, the things where, they, where you get made fun of in, in good taste, you know, it's great. It's almost a higher accolade than some big posh award, you know. If you hit the comedy stream, that, that's brilliant. I loved it. Yeah, I remember one, I think Sting was like hosting and he was the musical guest also. And he was like they had this famous skit where he was in the elevator with I think David Spade and he kept like singing his songs and Sting was getting pissed. It, it, it was really funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if it works, if it works well, it's a it's a very nice. Uh, it's a tip of the hat, you know. So. Right. Yeah. It, definitely. Definitely. So then, you know, as a result of broadcast, you guys get nominated for the best new artist Grammy, and there was like, I remember it was a bunch of other acts in that category that I was big fans of. I think it was like Terrence Trent Darby. For the Breakfast Club, I really enjoyed Swing Out Sister. I think Jody Watley ultimately won it. Did you guys uh, go to the Grammys? Yes, we were there. Yeah, we had our tuxedos on. Um, we, we we were kind of living in America anyway by that okay. time, so you know it was up the road. Uh, the I can remember there was some talk about we probably knew we hadn't won because. Um, you know, how much I can say on record probably doesn't matter now, but right. the amount of horse trading that goes on with those those back then, and I'm pretty sure it probably still does now, but I remember us being told that we'd been uh, given, I think Virgin were trying to launch their new classical label, so okay. they said, if you if you vote for Cutting Crew in as best acts, we'll, we'll vote for your classical acts or something uh, like that. You gotcha. know, all that bullshit that goes on. Um, you don't, you don't want to hear it. And you know, I remember the guy coming up to a, to us before the show and saying, "You're probably not going to win, guys tonight. But, you know, have a good time." <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm just the experience. I'm sure it was was good, nonetheless. That was fantastic. We went to the parties afterwards. We went to Prince's party down in um, Lower Manhattan and um, a very cool warehouse. And um, because of his diminutive size and the uh, opposite size of his bouncers, all I remember all night was seeing five bouncers walk around this crowded room and we never saw Prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you get uh Oh, so you didn't see him at all that night then? <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> now, of all the places like you've you've toured, you know, especially in America, where are some of like the favorite like venues and cities? Hmm. Well, that first tour we mentioned was when it was mega. That was, that was the big, the big arenas and domes, you know. But then we did our own tours, and it was what, what you call in this. We don't have this word in in, in Britain, but we, you call it the sheds. You know, those those lovely outdoor right. lawned where you can sit up on the grass and have a six pack and, um, you 
know, and it's, it's sunsetting and all that. So I, I can remember that sort of northern sweep through um, the beautiful summers of Detroit and Chicago and um, along the top there. Very fond memories indeed. Um, you know, New York's cool, of course. We played the, um, the famous Fillmore East and um, out in Hollywood we played uh, the Greek theatre, you know, so these are all as a Brit, you know, it would be a bit like you saying, wow, you know, I, I saw a band at the Marquee or I saw a band at the, at the Hammersmith Apollo. Well, that, that doesn't mean anything special to us, but to me, playing the Greek or the Fillmore is stuff that I've got albums of, you know, so um, so, so many. America's, America's gigs are beautiful and because you're so lucky with your summers that just about always we played in gorgeous, you know, sunsets. Yeah, they're like even like where I am. There's a lot of like you know really nice outdoor venues, and you know you get in really nice weather. You can definitely enjoy a good concert. Yeah, and it was it was um it was not only nice to see that, but you could see the people out there. You know, so it wasn't dark. So oftentimes, you know, you you did you when you play an inside gig, which probably is much more rock and roll and much more right. And, and in your face and all that, but I just find it rather nice to be out there singing my heart out, and I could see mum and dad up the top there with two ten-year-old kids mm. and having a tuna sandwich. It was um, it's something I'd never seen in Britain, you know. <laughs> and then by the time it, it all settled down again, it was time for that second album. And personally, I don't care what anybody else says, and you know, I don't have to make these things up in interviews. Personally, I think Scattering is a gorgeous album. I think it's got some fantastic songs on it hasn't got died in your arms or, or anything but it, for me it stands up but um, it, it, this is no excuse at all you know if, if it was a shit album then okay it was a shit album but even if it wasn't in those two and a half years the music industry had galloped ahead it was scary Virgin Our label had just signed Janet Jackson they'd just signed Nina Cherry they'd just right. signed Soul to Soul the, the dance music urban music was coming in at a million miles an hour and, you know, I mean, the, the 80s was coming to an end and um, us white guys with our rock guitars, you know, we'd had a, uh, you know, it had been 10 years of that. And so I can honestly remember this, this, the smelling, the, this, the, the, the air, the wind changing, you know. <laughs> scare me, uh, you know, we were either going to succeed or fail on our own merits, but... You know, it was very obvious that the interest from the record company had passed. So we delivered the album and they said, yeah, thank you very much. Can you go away and write five more songs? And I was like, okay. So I went away and wrote another five more songs. And by that time, it was, I think it was two and a half years almost before, between albums. And that's a long time. Yeah, especially when you when you have like a, a smash like broadcast. And the scattering, I enjoyed it. Was like, I think you had like 17 songs on that, if I remember. Yeah. And, you know, like... Yeah. Oh, and you, you had a couple uh, decent songs that come out in the U.S. You know, everything but my pride and between rock and a hard place.
It's, it does sound different than broadcast, but it also, I think, you would you evolve. So I, I don't think people, you know, personally, when I, when I hear a band, I want to hear how the, the evolution of the band, you just want to, you don't want to hear the same stuff over and over again. No. And, and we couldn't do it over and over. It's very, very interesting that because um, I didn't think the, the band had any difference, but. Kevin's influence was really coming in. See, I'll tell you a nice story. We had a manager, he can remain nameless, who was mm-hmm. very, he worked for Madonna and he okay. wanted to sign us. And uh, he heard broadcast and, you know, he knew that we were Grammy nominated and we were going to get, you know, we were on the on a roll. So he could see we were an attractive proposition. He heard the second album and he said, ah, yeah, okay. He said, who wrote these songs? And I said, well, me and Kevin and the band. And he said, well, who wrote the first album? And I said, I did. Yeah. And he said, there you go. You know, you don't change things. And I, I was angry at that because um, I always up to every single thing I do now on stage or in the studio, I have a bar that I set, and I'm sure you do in, in your quality of work and life, and I, if anything doesn't hit that bar, it doesn't get released, so um, I found it you know, slightly offensive, but at the same time, you know, there's something magical on that broadcast album that's hard to put into words, that, 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 that transcended everything else. Yeah, you know, and it's... Yeah. It's it's also hard. You hear like one person's opinion about it. You know, you can you know bring it to somebody else, and they might think it's Sergeant Pepper. You know, so it's it's just it's yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's things how you know how how things are, you know oh. are, are funny like that. But then you know the, the band broke up it, a couple of years later. Was that just mainly because you just couldn't repeat the success of Broadcast? Um, a little bit. I think um, we we released. A- third album that not everybody's aware of um it was released for like 10 seconds <laughs> right um called, called compass mentus and immediately uh, on, i remember when we were fixing mixing the final tracks these guys came into the studio wearing suits and ties and, and i asked the producer who were they and he said oh they're from emi hmm. they're buying they're buying this studio and buying virgin and i was like oh okay and within six weeks I think they got rid of 200 bands they fired, and um, we just literally finished our third album, so that was it. I, at that time, I'd given up. I just thought I can't, I can't hold, I can't hold the floor together against these, you know, moving forces that are stronger than I. So by that time, Kevin had become friends with uh, Robert's band, and and he went off and, and toured with Robert for a couple of years. So everything was fine. I um I went on to do managing and writing, but I think one thing I would teach any young kid, uh, or not young kid, into the music business is you know, be brave, be bold, be 
be don't trust the experts just follow your own you know be be successful or fail on your own merits but when you feel that the industry is ganging up on you don't try and fight it because it's too big you know it's too big to fight okay so after uh i just died in your arms came out do you remember where you were the first time you heard it on the radio <laughs> good question um yeah, I do. I remember it was a hot summer in England, and I was driving down to be on holiday with my brother, and it was a sort of six-hour journey, and the, the song was played on every show on national radio as we drove down, and I remember thinking, dear, we, we may have something exciting here. It's like every show played it. Yeah, and now, um, slightly similar question. Where is like the most like interesting place you've heard one of your songs? Doesn't have to be I, I just died in your arms, but like location, like a building, you know, a store, any place, dentist, elevator. <laughs> I was in the Thai Thai jungle. Jungles of Thailand a couple of years ago, and um, I remember hearing one for the mockingbird in a kind of little tiny bar where you could basically buy guava juice and bread. <laughs> I think right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool. I, I I so wanted to tell the guy, you know, it would have been it would have been foolish. He would never have believed me, but I wanted to say, that's me, that's me. <laughs> <laughs>
did you have to take like a double take when you first heard it there? Uh, I'm no, I'm kind of used to hearing it, you know, coming out of radio. So I suppose I knew absolutely it was me. It was just it was funny more than than, right. than a shock, you know. Yeah. I can tell you, I can add to that question and, and talk about one for the Mockingbird, where one of the strangest live versions I ever saw of one of my songs was when we were uh, the second album was out and we were touring America and we were down in Miami. And one of these big Miami, you know, uh, dance bands, you know, these sort of 25-piece with brass and girls and everything. Right. And they played one for the mo- they played one for the Mockingbird. It was just sensational. It was a kind of salsa. And the <laughs> band, they played a one and more song. One for the Mockingbird. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about, like, kind of, like, remakes or covers of, of your songs. Uh, and I really haven't really heard any of like I just died in your arms. Are there any out there? The um, I take it as a compliment in some ways that maybe there aren't hardly any. Um, there's certainly I've been in love before has never been covered ever right. ever ever ever. Um, but died in your arms has so many. Um, I could I could release four albums of rap or hip hop versions of it. <laughs> um, where they've either taken a sample of it or have sung it, you know, over top of a, a different groove, That's with varying success. Some of them, some of them, I think, are fantastic. Others are pretty awful. Um, but yeah, it's. I spoke to. Um, I spoke to a guy who was it? Oh, Pete from Go West recently. Okay. And he said, you know, they they get very few covers of their songs, and and we agreed that it's maybe because. You know, you don't touch a really good song, and I don't mean that in a. I don't mean that my song's better than a David Bowie song that's been covered, but it's. I think it's probably the whole way it's been put together. It's quite hard to do a another version of it. Yeah, it's and and Pete was right. I mean, you know, you don't hear any Go West covers as, as well as you know Cutting Crew, but like, like your songs kind of like in pop culture. Where is like the best placement of one of your songs that you've heard? Um. Very recently, um, with the Batman movie, yeah. uh, it's been a lot over the years. It's been in loads of movies, and um, we have a, a song called "Everything But My Pride," which right. is astonishingly one of those songs not many people know. But that's been in oh, ten films over the years. But but you cannot beat the ability to suddenly hook in a whole new generation of of uh, if not fans, people who are going to go, "Hey, I know that song," and and that's what Batman did, and uh, the leg Batman Lego. Um, and it was brilliantly placed. It was very camp. It was very um, funny, which Batman Lego is. Right. And and it was it was perfect because it had that kind of flashback '80s vibe when um, when uh, Bruce uh, meets the new young sexy commissioner. Yeah. All, all in Lego, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's bizarre. <laughs> yeah, but my my son certainly likes the song now as a result of the movie. So every time it comes, you know, comes up on the radio or something like that. He goes, yeah, dad, you know, cutting crew. I, I know it from Batman. I'm like, yep, definitely. <laughs> so and that's yeah. the kudos. That's the kudos, you know, that it can earn just by being on a big posh film. You get all this whole kind of, uh, I know a lot of kids will, oh yeah, that's uncle Nick or that, we know Nick over there. But as soon as you get something on a, on a kid's film, suddenly you're, you're VIP again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and your latest album, Add to Favorites. What do yeah. you think of it? You know what? It, it is ridiculously good. It, it's like so different than anything I've heard from you guys. And like, 
you have so many different types of music on there. You have kind of like an all country, you have jazz, soul, pop. I, I really, really enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That's why we called it, that's why we called it Ad's Favorites. I wanted it to be a, a tip of the hat to people that over the years, you know, had uh, turned my, uh, turned my eye, whatever it's caught my eye. Um, yeah. and, and by this stage, you know, at my age, I can do what the, like, what the hell I like. And, and it was all done with a bunch of pub musicians, you know, there was no big heavy hitters in there. It was just my mates and me. And, uh, trying to record it honestly and and we yeah thank you i'm very very proud of it yeah now now did you uh like fund that yourself i funded it myself um we had pledge music involved a little okay. bit but very very tiny amount so i'm lucky enough to be able to you know pay for these ventures um it's sold i think it sold about ten thousand copies so it's done all right um nothing like the heady days of the 80s right um, but but I, it's what's important. What's really important for bands like myself, and I, you know, I do a lot of gigs. I, I work a lot with with the Kershaws and the Go Wests and the Paul Youngs and the Heaven Seventeens and the Howard Joneses. You know, from the eighties. Right. Um, what's What's important, not only for for us artistically and for our for our pride, if you like, is to just you know keep writing and, and hopefully write good songs. That's that's number one. But on the business side, it's important just to show that you're you're alive and you're um, you are still out there. And by making a record, it's it's much more of a statement than just playing the local blues bar in Connecticut one night. You know, so I think making an album, as long as as I said earlier, it hits that bar of quality, is really important. You know, that will stay behind now, and you'll play it, and you'll you'll play to people, and, and it gets turned. You know, it gets gets handed around so I, I don't understand these people that just uh well i do understand if they can't write any songs yeah but <laughs> it's probably best they don't make another album right. but um, if you can if you can write release you know that's what being a musician is all about yeah and now especially with the technology you can just record it at your you know your house and re- release it yeah. online like the next day you don't have to worry about record companies telling you you don't like the song it's all it's all you now independently it's amazing, you know, what, what you can do now. I mean, I, um, the, Steve Earle, you know, had the best quote, I think, ever in, in recent rock and roll history when he said that, um, you know, the most amazing thing about the music business these days is that you can make a record, anybody can make a record. He said, do you know what the worst thing about the music business is? Anyone anybody can make a record. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's so true. It's, um, yeah. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to find to find stuff because there's so much. There's so much it's, now. Yeah, when, agreed. When we were when you and I were younger, we would you know I love the Police, I love T Rex, I love yeah. XTC, I love Super Tramp, I love Genesis. There's there's now twenty of all of those, of which maybe eighteen are shite, and two of them are brilliant. But that's a lot of work to find them. I mentioned earlier, uh, at the favorites is phenomenal um it has a nice mixture of all different genres uh, a couple songs uh can you start talk a little bit about looking for a friend
gave you inspiration for one of your songs. That's right. Berlin Winter is on the album and it's it's the one that we've been playing live on this recent British tour and, and it's almost eclipsing I Just Died in Your Arms. I, I really mean that. It's been such a powerful song to play. I stared at the Berlin Wall, a no man's land of faded loyalties. Seems forever, but it's not that tall. And I can't see the eyes of the enemy. 
the silence was screaming my world had started shivering they said it was the coldest night in years playing in um, 
Aberdeen, right up in the north of Scotland. And I remember sitting down with Kevin and watching the television and seeing these amazing pictures of the kids, you know, bursting through the wall and the soldiers just standing there letting them through. And, you know, you can't make these things up. But two nights later, cutting crew were playing Berlin. And we had a hit record and charts. We had a sold-out club. And 21 people turned up. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was fantastic. I mean, we, I think we invited them all onto stage. We did about six songs. And then we just said, oh, fuck it. And we all went, <laughs> we all went down to the wall ourselves. You know, nobody wanted to be at a concert. So we were, we were celebrating and getting pieces of the wall to take home for our family. Um, so it means a lot to me that that period in history, and it was a privilege to be there. So the song is a song about a, a made-up you know, story, but back in the 60s, when it was being built, the wall, the, the communists used to just basically bully local teenagers and young men to be part of the labor gangs. So I had an idea about a man who was maybe one of those young men that built the wall, and then he lived through the 70s, um, with all the atrocities of shootings and things, and but lived long enough to be there in 1989 for uh, our 9/11, and he saw the wall fall, and uh, he was there to join in those those beautiful, beautiful scenes. Yeah, it's really yeah, definitely a powerful song, and then I'm sure everyone won't race to go see uh, David Hasselhoff perform there as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Now I, I was going to ask you about about Genesis because when Phil Collins left, you were actually one of the finalists to replace him as the lead singer, right? That was, certainly was, yes. Yeah, now what was that experience like? I mean, I love Genesis, you know, and it would have been really cool to, you know, hear you affront them. How did that experience go? It was um, unforgettable. Um, it was, I was very honored. Uh, it's slightly surreal to be sitting there with Mike and uh, Tony and their manager, Tony um, Smith, just talking about, you know, which songs would I like to sing? And I was like, well, <laughs> you mean I have a choice? Right. Like, well, you know, we've got, we've got everything here. Now, all the time I was thinking that the, the band would be next door because I went down to their million, billion dollar complex, you know, where they've got all these different rooms. And I was always told that if there was any song that was in the wrong key, don't worry, you know, the band will just change it down or whatever. So, um, so we're sitting having cucumber sandwich or, so, or something very English, you know. <laughs> I said, well, I, I want to do um, Mama. I think I can do a good job on that. And they said, okay, Mama, yeah. And I said, and, and just because it's so friggin' hard, I, I know I can do it. I'd like to do it on again, which is one of my favorite songs ever. Yeah. All, those, all those crazy pushes, you know. I, I get so long it was it was tricky and everything so anyway they said yeah okay well here's five songs we'll go through then we went through to the next room there was no band there there was no band at all they just had all the backtracks um so i said well how are we gonna uh, approach the key problems and i remember the engineer said well i can put my finger on the reel if you want and slow it down <laughs> <laughs> so we had uh I think it was one song, Turn It On Again, uh, right. which was so high, it was ridiculous. I sounded like I was going to explode. Um, but I did a great job. I uh, I think, well, I remember saying to them at the end, I shook their hands and I said, well, if you want somebody 
that looks like me is me and sounds like me you know I, I, there you go I can't be better than that and um, and I, I they phoned me up on uh, a Saturday morning about midday in Spike Rutherford hello Nick it's Mike oh hello hello Mike Hayden <laughs> just wanted to let you know by the we decided to pass um, we just didn't think you had enough high-end crap in your voice and I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's okay. And he said, I hope I haven't spoiled your day. And I said, no, no, I'm getting married in two hours. Oh, wow. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, I didn't get a gig, and who knows what, what may or may not have happened, but it was a day to remember. And I only wish somebody would have filmed it, because that would have been a very proud thing to keep for the future. Right, yeah, definitely, and I think it was Ray Wilson who got the job, and I think they did like one album, if I remember correctly. That's right. Yeah, I think it was okay. Uh, I remember calling all the stations was a good song. Yeah, um, yeah, I and mean, I think Congo was another one they had, or something like that. Yeah, but a lot of people. I mean, you know, it's a bit of a you know the expression "poison chalice." Who knows? I mean, you, you join them, and uh, it might have been the best thing that ever happened to me, or, or the worst. Who knows? But um, I was really chuffed to be chosen. I'll tell you one nice little side story to that. My my drummer Tom is a Genesis nuts, and he won one of these fan club visit the recording studio before it all got dismantled and sold okay. off. And he was walking around, and he saw a big tub of cassettes and VHS, you know, VCRs and everything. And in it was a cassette with, and he said, "Nick Van Eed um, audition tape." Oh, wow. And he was like, he's he so wanted to steal it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh wow, that's, that's And he funny. said to me, he not only said to me, he said, "You know, I never ever believed that story." He said, "But now I've got proof. I'm sorry." <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Now, you had uh, contributed to Shares Believe, correct? Yes, did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how did that happen? one song and uh, 
one of the guys said, you know, we really love I've been in love before and we love the second chord. So they, I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, do you believe, sorry, excuse me, wrong song. Um, I've been in love before, that second chord, been in love before. And I said, okay, that chord there. If I had my guitar on me now, I'd sell it right. better. But, but I said, okay, fine. Well, let's hear your song, and um, you know, say, do you build, do you believe in life after love? That's how it went. And I remember with Kevin going, well, if you want the being in love thing, you say, uh, do you believe in life? And so we changed the chord to that, and then I changed the melody to the second half of the verse, and um, we did this weird version of it, kind of almost like a dance version of it, and. Uh, I think it's ten years later. I remember being in my studio and listening to national radio on the BBC in England. And you know, you, I just heard this thing come on, and I remember thinking, I know that song. You know, that that's, that means something to me. And then, of course, the phone rang, and it was this young lad. He said, "You were on the fucking radio." <laughs> and she, Cher had, uh, had done it, and this lad didn't know anything about it. His partner had gone on to be a very famous record producer. And um, so by this time, I think there were nine, I think if you look up the title, there were about nine writers on it. Right. Um, so, yeah, we were proud to be involved, and uh, it's a nice story. Yeah. Now, uh, do you get compensated for it? No, uh, a bottle of whiskey. Oh, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> we, we, um, we... We got paid a bottle of whiskey for that session, and when it came out, I remember my lawyers getting in, they got in touch with me and said, Nick, this is going to be a massive hit, you know, this is a comeback hit. And uh, I remember phoning up Kevin, and I said, what do you want to do? And he said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, well, is it going to cost legal fees? Because this is Kevin talking, I haven't got any money. Right. And I said, well, he said, it will do. And he said, how sure are we getting it? And I said, we're going to have to share it with nine other people. And he said, ah, let's. Let's, let, let, let's, I think he said something beautiful like, it can be our gift to share. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice of him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You are you and the band are going out on tour with Wang Chung in Canada. It's a, it's a, a new thing we made up. About two years ago, I, I did a tour in Britain with a young Canadian band called Blurred Vision, who are okay. just sensational. And... Um, they're all sort of 22, 23, and they said, well, why don't you and Gareth let us be your band, and we'll go out and, you know, we can do it on the stage at the same time, and you can sing some of my songs, this is Blurred Vision talking to me, and I will join in on yours, and so we play with this really hard-ass Canadian rock band, and you've never heard, you know, any colour, Mockingbird, rock so hard. So we did it, and it was it was received very well, um, uh, one of the, the Nick from Wang Chung came along and saw us, and I'm sure the the, the idea went through his head. And so uh, Jack doesn't perform with Wang Chung hardly at all now. Right, right. And uh, it's just Nick Feldman. And uh, so what he said was, you know, can we try a few ideas? So Gareth, this is a bit complicated. Gareth, my guitarist, um, said, well, I, I love Wang Chung songs. So he started singing some of them. I sing some of them. And so we now have. We were on the stage all at the same time, and you get, um, you know, dance all days, everybody have fun tonight, let's go. 
I just died in your arms. I've been in love for one for the Mockingbird and many more. And it's all with the same keyboard player, same bass guitarist, and me, Nick, and Gareth. And it works fantastically. We did about four last year. We played the Viper Room last year in um, in uh, Hollywood, okay. and it was oh, just brilliant, just brilliant. Yeah, you, you certainly have to bring that down to New York. Well, yeah, that's planned for next year. We've got agents looking at us um, up in Canada to make this work. It's an odd thing to sell, and I, I appreciate that, that there might be some purists who, who want Jack in the band, and I appreciate there might be some purists who don't want Gareth singing Wang Chung songs, but when you see it, when right. you see me sign a band next to Nick Feldman and uh, the way it sounds, it, it really does work. So, yeah, we've got three weeks, uh, sorry, two weeks in Canada. But, Nick... Thanks for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it, and best of luck. Thank you, Noel, uh, and uh, thank you for all your interest, and keep in touch. And a special thanks to Nick for joining us today. You can follow the band on Twitter at the underscore Cutting Crew. You can follow the band's website. It's called CuttingCrew.biz, B-I-Z. You can follow me on Twitter at the first Noel 19 be sure to like the page for Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. You can subscribe. And please, while you're there, rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, no problem. Go to SoundCloud. You can go to Podbean. Special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Living My Youth real soon. <laughs>